It is the OU Jewish Reaction Show here at the Nachum Siegel Network. We get an opportunity each week to speak with uh, wonderful people who have a lot to tell us during this uh, hour, and I thank everybody for tuning in. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Nachum Siegel Network. That's all you got to search for, and you'll be part of our uh, Nachum Siegel Network Facebook update page. Ellie Fisher, Rabbi Ellie Fisher, has uh, written an article uh, which appeared in Jewish Action entitled Bringing Torah to Life in Har Bracha. We know there are some very special places in Israel, many, many special places. And um, Ellie starts the article by writing, There are many words that come to mind when describing Jewish communities deep within the Shomron. Pragmatic is not one of them. <laughs> Yet Har Bracha, more than any other Yeshuv, and perhaps more than any other community in Israel, is the product of an attempt to translate a particular vision of Torah-centered communal life into a holistic plan that encompasses practicalities like economic self-sufficiency, higher education, commuting distances, and the cost of housing and daycare, and that plan is becoming a reality. Ellie Fisher, welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. How you doing, Nahum? Baruch Hashem, nice to speak with you. Um, when did this, Likewise. I appreciate that. When did this begin, that um, uh, a group of people felt that Har Bracha could be a place that encompassed what you just described in the first paragraph of the article? Um, I think that really happened when um, when the yeshiva was built there. Um, you know, before the yeshiva was built there, it was a, it was a community and a community like many other Israeli communities. Um, it was kind of the yeshiva that gave it a, a shape and gave it a, a vision to become something uh, to become something more. Um, in the article, I detail that it's. Um, has a lot to do with uh, Rav Eliezer Malamed, who's the Rav of the Yishuv. Right. And, uh, you there? Yeah, we've had the opportunity, in yeah. fact, uh, we've had the opportunity on another one of the shows to go into some of the amazing Svarim that he's written, Some, many of which have been translated into English. Uh, he's, had a, he's had a tremendous ripple effect, not just for the community itself where you are and the yeshivas you describe, but really internationally. Okay, well, I don't live there. Ah. <laughs> I don't live in Harbracha. I just got to clarify that. Um, you know, I I wrote for, uh, you know, I write for, for, I occasionally write for Jewish Action. And, um, you know, when when it came, you know, when they asked me about, uh, when they asked me about this, about writing a, uh, writing something about a community that Americans might not know all that much about, um, you know, I, I gave them... I gave them some ideas, and the truth of the matter is, I have um, I have two I have two articles in this in the latest edition. One in one I describe Harbrahan, and the other one I describe uh, Moshav Matityahu. That's uh, Rav Zev West Yishuv, because um, I think that they're both a little bit not what an American readership or listenership is uh, necessarily used to. Harbracha is located uh, close to places we may have heard of before this, like uh, you know Carnei Shomron, etc. Kedumim. Well, as the name will indicate, um, uh, Harbracha is um, is located on Har Grizim, mm-hmm. right, which overlooks Shem. Right, if you uh, open up a, a Chumash, uh, you'll see that um, there are two mountains. Hargrizim and Harival that uh, that overlook Shem, right, that are that are just on you know on either side of Shem and uh, Harbracha right, and you know there were brachot and brachot and klalot that were that were uh, said to the Jewish people, you know immediately upon their uh, their arrival in the land of Israel were on uh, was on Hargrizim and Harival and the brachot were recited toward Hargrizim. And the Klalot were recited the word Harival. That's where you get the uh, the name Harbracha from. So that's where it is. It's in, or it's right near Shkaf. Rabbi Eli Fisher is with us. You do mention in the article what I just cited in terms of uh, Rabbi Malamed's, uh, uh, you know, expanded reach, you know, way beyond Harbracha. You speak about the 1992 founding of the yeshiva there under his leadership. It is a Hezder yeshiva, as you point out, and. Um, Another unique element you write of the yeshiva is a program called Shiluvim, offering housing to single and married students at Ariel University, which is about 20 minutes away. How did that help build the community? 
Um, I mean, that really was, uh, first of all, it, it filled a need that wasn't otherwise being filled. Um, you know, there were, there weren't any programs for people that, you know, left yeshiva but wanted to remain sort of in a yeshiva environment. Um, in the U.S., it might be, it might seem like a, um, you know, like, of course that's what happens. You know, there are all kinds of programs that combine uh, yeshiva study with uh, with college, with university. Mm-hmm. Right? There are yeshivas that have, um, you know, the guys go to uh, go to college at night, etc. In Israel, you didn't really have that. You had, you know, people would sit and learn in yeshiva for a number of years, um, you know, but they didn't really, um, you know, they weren't really, when they went to university, it was, you know, it was university. It wasn't, uh, um, you know, there was nothing that was, there was no attempt to really combine the two, uh, the two elements. So Shulavim sort of grew out of that. You know, there was a need, and they, and they filled the need. Um, and what that did was it attracted people of exactly that, you know, it attracted exactly that type of person, the kind of person that, you know, wants to, wants to study in the university and wants to, you know, go get a job, wants to, you know, wants to become, um, you know, wants to train professionally and not just professionally, train academically and, um, you know, but who also wants to, uh, who also wants to remain in that sort of environment, yeshiva sort of environment. Um, so that attracted people even beyond the yeshiva. Um, and, you know, and that really served as an engine for growth because these are people who are at the point in their lives where they're thinking about family, they're thinking about getting married. You, know, you got to remember that, you know, after Hezder, and is, you know, an Israeli, a young Israeli man, right, he graduates high school at the age of 18. He goes to Hezder. Hezder's a five-year program. When he's done, he's 22 or 23. Um, you know, and just that, that's when he's starting university. So if university is the age, you know, is from age 23 to 25 or 24 to 26, um, you know, that's an age where a lot of people, you know, they, they want to, they want to start settling down. They want to start, uh, having a family. Um, and, uh, you know, and Shulim turned out to be a very attractive program for people in that, in that place, you know, in that, in that station in life, because, um, it enabled them to, to, to further their careers while also starting to, uh, you know, to build a family. You have any idea how many? Um, you have any idea how many students are in Ariel University? I don't. Um, and and you write one of the uh, one of the observations you make, and now it's even uh, easier to understand based on the way you're describing it, is that the number one number one export of the uh, of the uh, yeshuv is Torah study. But they have uh, under Rabbi Malamud's in, encouragement, uh, they have uh, made sure to make uh, quote unquote regular careers and educational pursuits. A very important part of everyone's academic life. Uh, that's all based on his philosophy, and that's why the community essentially has gravitated in that direction. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think you can't really. Um, you know, I think it really is Rav Malamed who, um, who articulates the vision of the community the way it is today. Obviously, not everybody there is a um, is, was a student of his in yeshiva or whatever. Um, you know, but ultimately he's, he really has left his, uh, his, his mark there because, you know, and, it, and it's really a, um, you know, part of his vision is that, you know, we weren't used to this sort of, um, you know, a, a division between, uh, you know, like the professional Jews and then the professional professionals. Right. And, uh, for Malami, you know, he doesn't think that that's, he, he, you know, and then he's right. That shouldn't be the case, right? You know, the fact that I have a career in something other than, um, you know, other than teaching or learning or, uh, you know, something within the Jewish, you know, the the, the Torah orbit um, doesn't absolve me from becoming like a serious, you know, a serious Torah scholar. Um, maybe not one that's going to be a Rosh Hashiva someday, but... Um, you know, but a serious Torah scholar, somebody who invests a lot of time, you know, makes it a, a central part of his life. So he's, so he thinks that in order for that vision to work, um, you know, he, he would say, you know, it's better, like, rather than spend an extra year in yeshiva where, you know, maybe you'll get another 200, 250 days of learning for 12 hours, 
right? Mm-hmm. You would take that time, you invest it in a in a sort of in the sort of career that will enable you to you know, to learn maybe four or five extra hours a week, but for your whole life. Um, you know, he, he he's not interested. He he takes a holistic perspective. He takes a you know the larger view. Well, we're not trying to get it. You know, like we're not looking at just what's going to happen in the next five minutes. We're looking, you know, we're thinking about how to build a life, how to build a community, how to build a, um, you know, how to how to build a, a miniature society, which, uh, you know, which is centered on Torah and Torah living and Torah study. Um, you know, and not just in the, on the micro level, but in the big picture. Rabbi Eli Fisher lives in Modi Inn. He, uh, in addition to this uh, article bringing Torah to life in Harbracha, which is interesting in and of itself, by the way, is there an Anglo community in Harbracha? Has have English speakers discovered it yet or not? Um, they haven't really, and I don't think they're going to. The, uh, there are a few English speakers there, um, but more it's more often, um, let's say, second generation English speakers. Understood. Uh, I mean, people who people who made Aliyah as children, or people whose parents made Aliyah. Somewhat different from what you found in Moshav Matijau, which I assume is near you, right? Isn't that near Modin? Am I correct? Moshav Matijau is near Modin. And yes. and that one uh, that one was actually founded by American Jewish families, correct? It was. What's the what's the his, um, what's the history there, and what is Moshav Matijau known for? So Moshav Matijau, um, it's an interesting place. It's small. It's very small. Um, I mean, it's grown. Considerably in the last few years, but it's still uh, it's still small. Uh, it has, um, you know, I you know I point out in the article that both ideologically and geographically, it's in between Kiryat Sefer and Chashmonaim. <laughs> Kiryat Sefer is Kiryat Sefer is, is um, you know Kiryat Sefer is sort of is is they, they build it as the third Haredi city right. Right, after Yerushalayim and Bnei Brak. I think Beitar might. Uh, yeah, that's what I would I disagree have said. with them about that, but um, you know, it's a toss-up between those two. Right. Um, you know, it starts. Well, Kiryat Sefer is technically is a neighborhood in Modi'in Elite. Modi'in Elite is the name of the whole uh, city of about sixty thousand, um, and it's an entirely Haredi city. Kiryat Sefer, the first part was uh, Litvish, and now there are also there are Sephardi neighborhoods, there are Hasidic neighborhoods. Um, you know, it is a, a large, bustling Haredi city, and um, Matajau sits, you know, walking distance from it. You know, it's it's right there. Um, you know, kids that live in the, in Matajau they walk to school in Kiryat Sefer, um, but it, but it's also walking distance to Hashmonaim, um, which um, as many Americans know, there's a lot of Americans there too. Uh, it's a uh, it's a more religious it's, it's a religious Zionist um, it's a religious Zionist community very religious very Zionist um, very American but it's uh, you know you'll see more knit yarmulkes you won't see as many knit yarmulkes in in Matityahu, but you will see a few so it got the um, it got the title uh, in terms of the article you wrote it got the title of Haredi Zionist Moshav because of the population being somewhat Haredi, or because the philosophy of those Zionists were somewhat Haredi? Or both? Um, well, first of all, it, it was part of a larger movement that um, doesn't really exist anymore today, or at least not as the movement that it used to exist as, which is Paulea Agudat Yisrael. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting. People think today of, you know, Haredi and Zionist as sort of a uh, contradiction in terms, um, but, you know, interestingly, some of the original, some of the first Zionists, and I'm talking like, um, you know, going back to the 1860s and 1870s, were, were Hungarian Haredim. Um, you can make a, you can make an interesting argument, and there are those who do, that Rabbi Akiva Yosef Schlesinger, who, you know, he, he's a seminal figure in the history of Modern ultra orthodoxy, right? He was, he, he took the Chasm, uh, the Chasm Sofa philosophy and really put a much sharper point on it. Um, you know, he also was one of the first people to articulate a true, full-blown Jewish nationalism, mm-hmm. um, which is an, it is a striking combination. And he himself, he put his money where his mouth is. He made Aliyah 
uh, in the eighteen in the late eighteen sixties, early in the early eighteen seventies, and he was one of the founders of Petah Tikva. Um, you know, so uh, I think he should be taught. They should teach about him in Israeli Haredi schools and also in Israeli uh, in Israeli secular schools because right. you know the the image that both like to preserve is that the Haredim, you know. Even though, yes, they've been in Israel for a very long time, longer than the Zionists, but then they just sat and learned Torah all day. Um, and the first people that came to Israel to really work the land, you know, they were the secularists that started coming in the 1880s. And then you point to these guys, that, you know, the, the people that founded Petah Fitzer, the people that founded Ekron, which is today Farbatya, right? And you point to them and you say, hey, that's not true, right? There were people that came here, and they were Azoy's home, and they came to work the land. So it complicates the picture. Um, so, you know, one of the reasons I enjoyed writing about Matityahu is because it has something of that, you know, that throwback feel. And you mentioned her by left earlier, and that's, and that's because he was able to sort of straddle the fence on all this, appeal to everybody or close to everybody, no matter what their background was and no matter what philosophy they undertook? I don't think he would consider it straddling the fence. You know, Love Left, you know, he's, before he made Aliyah, he was a pulpit rabbi in America, in, in Miami, right. Miami Beach, I believe. Right. And, um, you know, like a good American pulpit rabbi, he has a very strong dose of common sense, right? He's, he's a pragmatic thinker. He's a, he's a, he's, he articulates things pragmatically, not necessarily ideologically. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have an ideal, ideology, you know, but, you know, he, he'll, he'll say, you know, and I've heard him say that, you know, ideally the best thing is for all the boys to sit and learn in yeshiva. But he understands that it's not right for everybody. So, you know, back before, like even before the current trend of, you know, more and more, uh, uh, sorry, even going to the army, you know, he, in his own family, he had, he had some sons that went to, uh, that went to the army. He had some sons that, or, you know, in the, in the context of Hezer or Nafal Haredi. And he had other sons who went to, um, you know, who, who sat and learned in yeshiva for, for a longer period of time. And, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I think that that's, you know, he has the, that, that, that pragmatic intuition that, okay, you do what's right for each kid, what each kid needs, you know, without, you know, subverting the, you know, subjecting the kid's needs to, um you know, to the ideological flavor of the day, or to whatever the party line is. And did I read? Um, did I read correctly? The town only had one shul for quite a while. Yeah, that's unusual. Yeah. It really. I'll tell you a story that happened about fifteen years ago. Um, it, it really, you know, that was before this new wave of building. It really had a shtetl feel to it. Um, Carryout Safer was just, was much smaller. Um, and, you know, Moshav Matityahu was maybe 60 families. There was one minion, and it was Rav Lep's minion, and he was, you know, he was the Rav. And, and, uh, and, um, there was one Shabbos, you know, we, you know, my wife teaches in, in seminaries, and she had a class Shabbaton, and, you know, they, we were living in, in the Gush at the time, and we thought it would be, you know, we wanted to take them somewhere, someplace different, someplace that they, they wouldn't otherwise experience. So he organized the Shabbaton in Moshav Matityahu. So we're there Shabbat morning, and before leaning, uh, Rabbi Left gets up, stands by the bima, and he puts a guy in cherem. Puts a member of the community in cherem. Right. And I, I had never seen that before. I had never, um, you know, it was it was jarring. Like you think you can't go within his daladamos, you can't. Uh, um, you can't uh, you can't do business with him. If you see him, you, you can't talk to him. You can't, uh, and it was really uh, you know it was wild. So the reason to put him in cherem, you know, not everybody that gets put in cherem is a is a is a is a, is a Benedict Spinoza. The reason he got put in cherem <laughs> was you know yeah. failing to pay taxes or something like that. Right. You know, something very very mundane, very prosaic, something that like. Everybody you know, does. The required social sanction, and you know, you, you know, after defaulting on his municipal taxes for so long, you gotta, you gotta do something, right? So anyhow, these seminary girls, eighteen-year-old Americans, like they're there, and you know, he, the Rav was left at that time. He was still giving his drushers in English, so you have like a very American feel, and they're like, okay, it's American, it's, it's, 
And then all of a sudden, he throws a guy and tears him. And it was just, they were blown away. So we had um, we had organized beforehand that Rav Left was going to speak to these girls uh, at Shalashudis. And uh, so before Shalashudis, you know, after Mincha, I went over to him and I uh, I said, you know, uh, very happy that you're going to be speaking. You know, maybe uh, a couple of words at the beginning of whatever you were going to say. Just explain what exactly happened in Shul this morning. Um, and Revlef was like, yeah, otherwise they're going to think we do that every week. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, I, I just can't, I can't imagine very many other places where the rabbi can get up and show and put a guy in harem and the harem would actually be enforced there in that community. Yeah. It's, you it's, make- um, it's a throwback. You're making a very important point. Rabbi Ellie Fisher, uh, articles written in um, in Jewish Action, one entitled Bringing Torah to Life in Har Bracha, and the other, a Haredi Zionist Moshav, Moshav Matidyao, as the uh, the issue g- uh, gave an opportunity to people around the world, and obviously specifically in the U.S. audience, to gain a perspective about places in Israel we may not be as familiar with. Rabbi Ellie Fisher, I take this opportunity to wish you a Chag Kasher Sameach. Thank you for spending the time with us here. You too. At the Nahum Siegel Network. It's much appreciated. Bye. More coming up. Keep it here at the Nahum Siegel Network as we continue with the OU Jewish Reaction Program. From the Nochi Krone Band here at the Nahum Siegel Network. OU Jewish Reaction Show as we explore some of the uh, areas of Israel that the OU through its Jewish Action magazine explored uh, very recently. Vera Schwartz had an article entitled Rich Wine and Powerful History, a Shabbat visit to Elon Moret. She quotes a Pusuk from uh, Yirmiyahu, speaks about the um, uh, a couple of references in terms of what the community. Uh, in terms of the designation that she would give the community. Then she writes, Until this past summer when I visited Elon Moran in the Shomron for Shabbat, here I saw and felt the pull of the land that was first glimpsed by Avraham Avinu, the first Jew commanded to come to Israel. Here, too, I met some of the Vatikin, the brave and spirited founders of today's flourishing community of some 350 families. Against all odds, these men and women were determined to come down, to come home rather to the Shomron and witness the prophecy of Jeremiah unfold with their own eyes. Over excellent Cabernet Sauvignon, grown and bottled in Elon Marais, I heard the moving history of the Jewish community from my host, Rochelle and Zev Safer, and their Friday night guests, which included Benny Kotsover, one of the fiery founders of Gushamanim in the 1970s. And Zev, Sa- Zev Safer is with us via telephone as we talk about Elon Marais. Uh, Zev, welcome back to the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you, Nachum. That's, uh, that may say it all, that Benny Kotsover is among the founders of the community, I just shouldn't say it that way. That he's among the residents of the community, one of the great founders of Gush Emunim. Um, I, I guess anybody who's in Elon Moray has to have some type of pioneering spirit within them. Well, especially the original settlers that were here that came and started Elon Moray. Um, we really were at that time pioneers. We had very basic. Uh, basic uh, circumstances here, and uh, thank God we were able to build a, a very nice community, and uh, throughout the Shomron there are very beautiful towns. How long have you been there? We've been living in the Shomron since uh, 1975, 41 years now. <laughs> uh, we started with a group in what is today Kedumim. Right. That's where the Elon Mora group started in 1975 on Hanukkah. And then we moved to another, we always wanted to be closer to Shechem. You know, Elon Mora 
We always wanted to be closer to Shechem, and we got permission to move to a town nearby Shechem in 1979, just after Menachem Begin was elected. And uh, we couldn't stay there. We had to move where we are today in 1980 on Har Kabir overlooking Shechem. Uh, where we were in 1979 is today Itamar. Mm-hmm. Uh, after we left, they were able to build a, a different town there called Itamar. And uh, since 1980, which is now 36 years, we're on Har Kabir. Well, aside from some of the bad news and terrible episodes of the last many years that we've heard uh, in, in, in some of the towns that you just described, um, every one of them has been a real outpost for uh, a tremendous outpouring of Zionism and expansion in Israel. Um, I mean, I remember my visit to Kidumim, as you just described the community there. Uh, you're, you're, you're meeting people who have tremendous resolve, and have incredible hope for the future of the Jewish people there in the Shamron. And I'm sure you have the exact same thing in Elon Moreh. How large is Elon, how large is Elon Moreh? How many residents are there? Today there are about uh, 350 families and about 2,000 people. And we have a yeshiva, a Hezder yeshiva, with uh, about 300 students. And we're going through now a very large building process of building a new neighborhood, hopefully up to 200 new homes. So it's really going to almost double the population, in a, hopefully in a short time. Is that being done with um, governmental permission? Is it being done with a lot of opposition? It's being done with what? Well, the building is being done, all, all building in Elon Mora is done with government permission. Uh, we have, we're able to build within the town itself. We can't expand, but thank, thank God we have enough land to right now build as many homes as, as we can. And um, that's, that's what we're pushing forward to do, because we feel it's very important for as many families, new families, to move out to Elon Moran in particular, and the Shomron in general, and to increase the population, the Jewish population here in this area. Zev Safra is, um, is with us via telephone. So the original founders of Gush Emunim, I mean, their their goal, of course, was to, you know, literally to found as many uh, communities as possible. I mean, it, what is the goal now? To to expand what's there? Is there still an effort to, to bring more, uh, you know, smaller yeshuvim to fruition, or it's such a difficult battle with the way the enemy, uh, over and sometimes not even the enemy, oversees the process, it just it, it, it becomes too difficult to do at this point. Right. It's, it's very difficult to, to start new towns today, new Jewish towns in, in Yudah and Shomron. And so we're, we're concentrating basically on increasing the populations of the existing towns. And uh, we're, we're successful in, here and there in, in building new outposts, but... Those are usually we don't have the means to uh, build it as, as up as much as we would like to, but maybe in the future those will take off and, and also be built up. But the main the main uh, building going on today is, is within the towns that are existing today. And Baruch Hashem, there there are a lot of new families coming, and the towns are booming. The uh, at the beginning of the um, uh, of the existence of Elon Moraes, so the influence of Avraham Yitzchak Cohen Cook and his son Ratzia Yehuda was certainly felt because a large group, or or I should say, part of the large group that had come, I don't know if we can call it a large group, were from Yeshivat Merkaz Harav. Is that influence still felt today? I definitely. Um, the original group that that started Gush Emunim were students of Rav Cook's. And uh, the Rabbanim today and all the Yishuvim, uh, or I would say most of the Yishuvim, are uh, from from that influence. So they, they carry on a lot of the work that, that he, he uh, started, and the feeling in the Yishuvim is one of continuing uh, his, his outlook and his 
feeling of, of Eretz Yisrael, Am Yisrael, Apitarat Yisrael. And there's no question that that influence is, uh, is felt in a lot of places in the Shomron, that's for sure. Uh, speaking with Zev Safer, who is uh, with us on the phone from Israel, the author of the article, um, Vera Schwartz, talks about how special Shabbat is in the, um, in the community. Uh, how would you describe it? How would you describe how different Shabbat there is than from other places around the world? Well, uh, basically, every day living in, in one of the Yeshuvim, and in Elon Moran in particular, it's, you're living with Jewish history. You know, when you read on Shabbos, the Parsha of the week in the, in the Torah, and you look out the window of the shul and you can see, actually see what you're reading in the Chumash, it's, it's quite a feeling. You know, you, you almost feel that, that Avram and, and Yaakov and Yitzchak are walking by outside as you're reading about these places of Elon Moreh and Har Grizim and Har Eval. And you're reading about Shiloh and the Beit El. This is really where it all began, and this is this is our roots. And so, when you're living it and you're here, and you're actually able to see it with your own eyes. It gives you a, a much different and deep feeling of uh, who you are and where you came from, and hopefully where we're going. Do some of those archaeological uh a uh, find still occur now? Uh, has there been anything recently discovered? I know that uh, in the article they write about the 1980 discovery of Yoshua's Mizbeach and Harival. You just alluded to the fact that there's a you know evidence in terms of the locations in and of themselves. Do things like that still happen today, or are they few and far between? They're they're still happening today, and they're still discovering uh, Shiloh is is there are digs going on there. And uh, it's uh, very interesting to see where the Mishkan stood. And um, there, are, there are discoveries being made all over Israel, uh, for that matter. They, they just discovered a um, near the Carmel uh, where they were making glass, and a, a tremendous glass factory in the time of the Romans that used to export the glass products all over the world uh, at that time. And they just discovered uh, up in the Galil, near the Kinneret, a uh, shul, another another synagogue, ancient synagogue, that was pretty much uh, at the time of the Beit HaMikdash. And so things in Israel are constantly being discovered. In the Shomron itself, the, since, since the uh, Oslo Accords, there quite limited in where they can look and where they can dig. So they're not able as much. As a matter of fact, in 1980, when they found the Mizbeach and Har Eval, it was only because at that time they were discussing, they were starting to discuss uh, the possibility that Israel would have to leave these areas, and they, they quickly put together a group that, that went out looking for uh, interesting uh, areas that might have something that, you can come back to later, and that's how they discovered how they came about the Mizbeach. And finally, we read we we read about the uh, the fact that the wine that they you were drinking in that article, a reference in the article, was grown and bottled in Elon Moret. Uh, how large is the winery? Is it, is it one we would have heard of? Actually, it just got started a, a little while ago. Uh, and they're not really exporting any of their wine yet. It's mostly for local consumption, um, but it's it's quite good. And uh, usually, when I come to the states to visit, I usually bring a few bottles, and people uh, really say that it's a very very high quality and a very good wine. And hopefully, they'll be able to grow and and start exporting. Is it under the name Elon Mara? Or it doesn't even have a formal name the, yet. The name, the name of the winery is Kabir Winery. Ah, Kabir, okay. From Mount Kabir, Kabir Mount Kabir, where we are. Right. And um, it's it's people who come and visit, and anyone who comes to Israel is welcome to come and visit uh, Elon Mora. They can definitely uh, purchase the wine in Elon Mora and uh, take home a few bottles. 
The article is entitled Rich Wine and Powerful History, a Shabbat visit to Elon Moret. It's uh, Zev Safer who is uh, with us via telephone. Zev, thank you so much. Continued success. Chag Kasher v'sameachti. We appreciate the time. Chag Kasher v'sameachti. You and all of your listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. More coming up. You are listening to the Nachum Siegel Network. This is the OU Jewish Reaction Program. And uh, don't forget our Facebook update page, simply entitled Nachum Siegel Network. Check it out today. Some of the music from the Nochi Krohn Band here at the Nachum Siegel Network. OU Jewish Reaction Program, and we are uh, delving into different communities in the Shomron and other areas of Israel that may not be as uh, as common or as well-known to some of our listeners, uh, doing it based on the, um, on the um, articles that have been written in the most recent issue of Jewish Action about different uh, cities and towns of Yudah and Shomron. Panina Taylor is with us via telephone. She's a resident of Kiryat Arba, has a remarkable story in terms of her own life, which she and I both believe we were able to uh, delve into a few years back when her memoir came out. And she's with us via telephone here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Panina, welcome back to the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you, Nachum. Thank you for having me. It's a, a pleasure, pleasure to be here with you. Great to speak to you. Uh, so your journey, I, I don't know how quickly we could do the journey. I just think it's, I think it's, I think it's fascinating that someone like yourself ends up in Kiryat Arba. That's why, otherwise I wouldn't force you to go through the whole story. But, but I guess we'll start. You're, you're raised in a Jewish home, right? Yes. And, well, a secular Jewish right, home. Right, a secular Jewish home, right, to be more accurate. And you, um, you take the opportunity at some point to, I guess what we would call, leave Judaism. Would that be an accurate way of saying it? 
Well, you can't leave something you don't know. So in a way, I left Judaism, except I was simply, I was in high school. I had had a traumatic childhood. I was on a search for something, an answer. I was having, I guess, what we would call an existential crisis. And uh, a classmate of mine was a born-again Christian, and she shared with me her beliefs, and they made sense to me. And so I embarked on a 17-year spiritual journey through Christianity. And um, where did you grow up, by the way? What city? Um, well, this was in Miami, Florida. I, I was born in New Jersey, though. Okay. And you know, seventeen years is a long time. What ends up? It sure is. What ends up? <laughs> it sure is. What ends up? De- what ends up derailing that journey? One would think the more you're into it, the less of a chance you're going to derail it. Especially, you know, you want to lend legitimacy and as much legitimacy as possible to what, what you've pursued all those years. It must have been very difficult to leave. You know. <laughs> The only the only answer is what could do it is God. I mean, the truth is is that um, we actually had our journey, and my story uh, documents this journey that we had from my husband and I. My, my husband was a pastor, and we were involved in Christian leadership, and then uh, segued into Messianic Judaism as my Jewish soul began to to call to me, and and I started looking into some of the traditions and observances of Judaism, and we became leaders in the messianic jewish movement and we ended up long story short moving to orthodox baltimore to the heart of orthodox baltimore in order to convert orthodox jews to messianic judaism and as i like to say god had the last laugh (laughs) that was the goal at that time huh that's pretty amazing Uh, yes yeah when when do you become and i I don't mean on your on your uh in terms of your chronology but in terms of uh you know in, in terms of our history uh, how many years ago do you become an Orthodox Jew? I became an Orthodox Jew when did I? Oh, in 2000. I came 2000. back to Judaism in 2000. So now we're talking about 16 years. I'm, I'm dating myself. This is terrible. When people interview me, it's like, uh, you know, you can just count <laughs> and figure out how old I am. But well, in your, in your case, yeah. it's even more fascinating. Panina Taylor is with us. So now you're in Kiryat Arba. How does that journey? How I do, am. How do you get from the United States to Kiryat Arba? Well, it uh, has taken kind of a convoluted route. We made Aliyah in, at the very end of 2006, beginning of 2007. Because you felt and because you felt the only place for a Torah true Jew is Israel, I would assume. Correct. Okay. Correct. And um, we started out up in the Shomron. We started out in um, in a small yeshuv called Kochav Yaakov. It wasn't the right fit for us, and I was having some cultural issues and uh, homesickness and stuff. And actually, we weren't looking to move to an English-speaking community. We actually moved to Kohav Yaakov because we believed that by moving to an Israeli community with only a tiny Anglo presence that we would be forced to assimilate and to learn Hebrew, and especially because we had three teenagers at the time, well, technically four, our oldest came over ahead of us as, and served as a lone soldier at 18 years old um, in the Army. And then we came over with our two teenage boys, and our daughter stayed in America for a few months before she came over to uh, Israel and, and did seminary here. But uh, what ended up happening was I was the one who had the hardest time, which was <laughs> we were totally shocked that I was the one with the hardest time. And uh, so we ended up moving to Beit Shemesh for a few years, and for me that was... Um, it allowed me a, a softer transition um, to Jewish to Israeli culture, uh, and then just because of circumstances, we've moved a lot because landlords have uh, had come back and whatever things didn't work out. And um, as it turned out, we we made Aliyah just at the bubble bursting on the home values in the United States at the end of 2006, beginning of 2007, and we thought we were going to come over with a nice down payment or maybe even the majority of the cost of a house, and we ended up uh, having to live off that money, and uh, so then we were renting, and so we've moved around a bit, and um, we ended up in Kiryat Arba for two reasons. One, the, the cost of housing, especially rental housing, the closer you are to Jerusalem, course the more expensive it is and we had to be in commuting distance of Jerusalem and so as we moved out from Jerusalem uh, Kiryat Arba really was the most reasonably priced community that was within a reasonable commute of Jerusalem the other reason that we looked that direction rather than let's say going north 
or, or even west, was that um, our children all lived in the Gush Etzion area, and mm-hmm. one set of married children actually had moved to Kiryat Arba because they were attracted to the holiness of the city itself, which is the suburb of Hebron, of Hebron, Hebron, I guess mm. is the way you would say it in English, Hebron. Mm. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of how we ended up here. Is there an Anglo community in, in Kiryat Arba, aside from yourselves? Um, <laughs> not as such. There are two neighborhoods in Kiryat Arba. The old neighborhood, which is you know referred to as the Kiryat, and um, the northern neighborhood, which is a, a bit newer and smaller, um, and there are virtually no English speakers. There's a few families in the in the northern neighborhood, which, as it turns out, is where we're living right now. Um, and then the Kiryat has actually quite a number of native English speakers, but they are mostly people who came in the 70s and 80s, and so they are all Hebrew speakers, and the only way that you know that they're English speakers is when they hear you struggling to speak to the cashier in the grocery store, (laughs) and they turn and say, do you need some help? (laughs) And you go, oh, you speak English, and uh, so then you strike up a conversation. But yeah, there's an English, there are English speaking classes in that, in that part of town, and uh, we're actually moving there in the fall. Panina Taylor is with us. Do you, is, is, there, is there still a movement to Kiryat Arba? Is the population you know, this year larger than last year there, or at this point it's stagnant? No, absolutely. I think that as the prices continue to rise closer into the city, into the center really, um, uh, people are seeking more affordable options and so housing is actually quite tight in Kiryat Arba. There's a lot of uh, smaller apartments, which means there's a lot of extremely reasonably priced places for people to live. They're older, but um, but very, very full, and there are new developments being built. Uh, I don't know all of the... Um, things that are in place politically that are limiting what can be built, but I do know that there are a couple of buildings, perhaps they had had permits before and it was released or or what, but I do know that there are new housing projects in development right now and, and for sale. Your your lectures, and when you're invited to be a guest speaker, essentially is about your journey and showing people how precious Judaism is, or it's more about Israel or both, what would you say? The vast majority of of the times that I'm invited to speak is about my personal journey, and then often if I'm invited for, let's say, like a scholar-in-residence, they'll either go the direction of the beauty of Judaism or they'll go in the personal growth and motivational speaking direction, which is something that I've recently kind of branched out into. Um, I worked with uh, Rabbi Yom Tov Glazer for four years. He does a seminar called The Possible You, and uh, so I've done a lot of speaking and teaching on... On getting beyond our past and um, you know personal growth topics so I, I don't ever really speak about Israel because I'm not a political person not at all I, I love Israel but that's where it kind of begins and ends do you have a I mean, I'm sure you have a unique perspective based on your background but <laughs> does it help does your background help in being a personal growth coach or a personal growth motivational speaker when you've seen so much along the religious spectrum, let's put it, over the years. I think that it gives me a unique perspective on people in general and what everybody does have in common and the fact that we all have hopes and dreams and goals and, and you know, that every person is created in the image of God. I think that I'm a little bit more open to loving all types of people I think comes a little more easily to me because I have been in that situation Um, you know I don't know that that necessarily qualifies me to be an inspirational or motivational speaker really any more than if I had simply been in Judaism my entire life but I think it does give me a broader perspective on life in the world and having a relationship with God you could give us a perspective on what people who aren't Jewish think of Orthodox Jews you know I have found um, that there's a tremendous amount of misinformation uh, out there, although nowadays there's a lot more because, of course, everybody is exposed to a tremendous uh, 
a larger amount of information simply because of the internet and right. you know you can simply google something but i have a relationship on online relationship with a pastor from maryland who um i i met on a mutual friends facebook page who was very new to Judaism and was giving out information that was not correct. And I told the pastor, you know, if you have a question about Orthodox Judaism, please feel free to ask me. And so we've had this ongoing dialogue, and I found that there are definitely a lot of things that that he had been taught or had assumed about Orthodox Jews that are just not true. And so I have the opportunity to share with him uh, what the truth is about what we believe and how we see the world. And um, there definitely is a lot of, of incorrect information out there that needs to be corrected. Panina Taylor, uh, she provided a bunch of information to um, the people who wrote the uh, series of articles that encompass a look at some of the uh, areas of Israel that not all of us are familiar with, including Kiryat Arba, where she lives. Uh, you can find the article in the most recent Jewish Action magazine, and I thank her for joining us here at the Jewish Reaction Program. Panina, thank you so much. It's a, a pleasure to speak with you again, and Chag Kasher v'sameach. And, uh, thank you, and you too. Continued success. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's Panina Taylor, who has, uh, if you check her out online, a, a unique history, to say the least. There are not many Orthodox Jews who've had the journey that she's had. I can tell you that much. You may want to check that out. And uh, if you Google her name, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. I thank everybody out there for listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Program. My name is Nachum Siegel. Always a delight to bring you wonderful guests with, our, with the assistance of the people of the Orthodox Union. The OU Jewish Reaction Program, right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Check out our Facebook update page, simply entitled Nahum Siegel Network. And thanks for tuning in.